Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Charlie Ellis is a legend in the world of finance, whether it was at Greenwich Associates or as chair of the Yale Endowment or a board member at Vanguard. He has seen pretty much everything in the world of investing. Uh, his career spans the entire modern era, dating back to um, uh, you know the Paul Volcker era and what took place uh, during the boom periods of the 80s and 90s, and how technology has changed the world of investing. It, he's just one of these people who is so thoughtful and insightful uh, uh, about everything. It's just always a pleasure uh, to chat with him. Uh, I found our discussion to be absolutely fascinating, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with Greenwich Associates, Charlie Ellis. The last time we spoke, we really were talking about the retirement crisis, and uh, we, we spent a little bit of time discussing Vanguard, but this new book is so interesting and so filled with details that only an insider can have. Let's delve into it a little bit. Tell us what first led you to Vanguard. How did you get involved with them? Well, it started a long time ago, 1966. Mm -hmm. I was working with a securities firm in New York, and Wellington was a client in Philadelphia. And I would go down to Philadelphia and meet with John Neff, Jack Bogle, and the others. And I got convinced that these were very bright and interesting people doing interesting things. Old Wellington was not really a great and interesting place. It was a balanced portfolio. The assets were going down year by year by year. As people said, you know, it's just out of date. I want to get a performance fund. I want to beat the market. Uh, these guys will never get out of the slow that they're in. Uh, but still, there was something special about Jack and John. So The irony of that is in 1966... Hey, we were about to start, you know, a long period of, of equity underperformance. You would have guessed, had you known, that a balanced fund, a stock and bond portfolio, was going to do a lot better than just the pure stock funds over the next 16 years. That's the way the world works. Just when you least expect it, something goes in a different direction. Uh, anyway, I really like the guys. And 
Then when Jack said he was going to be leaving after the merger made in heaven with the Boston group, uh, Jack, you, you really are stretching it. This is a very unlikely proposition. You got less than 30 people working with you. You're in charge of the back office activities. That's an activity you never, ever personally enjoyed at all. You always assigned that to somebody else. And he would say to me, don't worry about it. Jim Reapy's going to take responsibility right. for that. I don't have to do it. Uh, you're not allowed to do anything in investment management. And you're not allowed to do anything in sales. The mutual fund business is all about sales and investing. What are you going to do? And the answer was, I'm going to hang in there and find a way to make this thing work. And the fascinating story is the argument that he concocted around indexing. First, it's not investment management because, hey, we're not making any decisions. We're just buying all the stocks in the index. And second, there's no sales. People are going to come to us. So therefore, this is outside of the deal he cut with the folks at Wellington. Right. And it was just barely enough over a period of several months to convince his board of directors it's okay to do that. And he just kind of skated through. They barely approved it. <laughs> very close run. But so, Jack was a very argumentative, persuasive, always had the facts supporting whatever case. Like a really good litigating lawyer. Mm -hmm. He was always able to make his own case very, very, very well. So let's talk about that initial fund. The plan was to do an IPO to raise $200 million in new client assets for the fund. How much did they end up actually this raising? This is the first index fund. The first index fund. Yeah, it's a very interesting story. Going to raise a pretty serious amount of money. It was very hard to get Wall Street to agree to do the underwriting. And then it was really hard to get salespeople in the various cities to say, yeah, I'm going to pitch this to my clients for a very good reason. Everybody knew in those days the purpose of investment management is to beat the market. Everybody understood that was the game. So you're looking for a manager who's going to beat the market. Everybody talked that way. And here's a guy coming along saying, hey, I got a really good idea for you. I'm not going to beat the market. Jack would have argued, well, wait a minute. 75% of the active funds are underperforming what they said they were going to do. If I meet the market, match it, I'm going to beat most of them. I'll be in the top quartile mm -hmm. as a consequence. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jack, you're going to charge a sales load of 8% on this index fund. So people's first day are 8% behind the market. Mm -hmm. How are they ever going to catch up with the market? Don't let that bother you. We're gonna, it'll, we'll, we'll find a way to make it work out. But that was a killer. And people look at it and say, straight-faced, I'm not going to go to my clients and say, go into this investment opportunity. You're guaranteed to be behind the market for the rest of the time that you hold on to it. Now, some of the data that Jack had showed that the active managers, all of whom were high-fee, not even counting the fees after a period of time, the vast majority, some 95%, lagged the market. And then once you work the fees in after 10 or 15 years, they're way behind the market. Why did it take so long for that concept to be recognized by investors? We're all governed by our beliefs. And the beliefs are much more powerful than data. And as we've seen in politics, as we'll see in all kinds of other subject areas, what people believe 
is what drives them to their behavior and decisions. Uh, don't bother me with the facts. Is a reality of human beings. So if you're fact-based, you've got to be prepared for people to say, you're crazy. That doesn't make any sense. I know what's right. And when you look back to the 1970s and 80s, you know, we take it for granted how much data is available today, how easy it is for us to access historical returns for various indices versus inflation versus dividends versus everything. That technology and that information wasn't all that readily available 40, 50 years ago. What do you mean it wasn't readily available? It wasn't available, period. I mean, we go back a little bit of personal history. I was privileged to have the responsibility for representing Greenwich Associates consulting with Wall Street firms. The smartest people on Wall Street in terms of picking up and understanding, this is really good information. I can really put it to work. John Whitehead at Goldman Sachs, mm -hmm. who was unbelievably demanding and rigorous as a client, but I loved working for him because he always took everything very, very seriously. And there's one other person, Mike Bloomberg mm -hmm. at Solomon Brothers. And Mike took the information and converted it into decisions on a regular basis. And it put him in a very strong position competitively, but it also proved to him the value of having good, hard information. And you can't deny anybody can have good, hard information and not use it. He was really good at using it. And that's characteristic of why he's been so extraordinary in his successfulness years and years and years later. So all of this is really fascinating. What made you 19 books in decide to say, hey, you know, it's time to tell the inside story of Vanguard. What led you to saying, now is the time? I was a director of Vanguard. I had worked with Vanguard as a strategy consultant before being a director. And I was deeply convinced that this was, for almost any American investor, the right way to do your investing. And that it was low cost, yep, high value, yep, reliably delivered in a systematic way. And that looking at it as a director, it seemed to me very, very clear that Vanguard was way underestimated by almost everybody. The clients of Vanguard underestimated how good a deal they were really getting. People who weren't clients of Vanguard were crazy not to know what the facts were. They can make their own decision, but they should know at least what the facts are. Here's a better way of being able to get good investment guidance and information. And as a director, I said, you know, I think we really are making a big mistake not to make it clear to our own people how good a deal they're getting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, everything about Vanguard as an organization is modesty. Mm-hmm. And particularly with Jack Brennan, who was very much Mr. Modesty. And it just didn't take off. And then after I left the board, Jack and I were both advisors to a very, very large investment fund. And so it gave me an opportunity to make the pitch to him one more time. And he said, you know, I think you're right. <laughs> I think this would be good for investors. I said, but Jack, it's going to be good for Vanguard, too. He said, yeah, but it's really good for investors. So let's go ahead. So I like the concept of Vanguard's culture as unique in the world of finance, low cost, high integrity. Tell us a little bit about the Vanguard culture. 
Well, it starts with one very simple proposition. Nobody is making a profit. Every other investment organization has got a problem that somebody is taking money out of the pot every day, every month, every year as a profit. Mm-hmm. That's the American way. It's a good incentive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's a group who's highly motivated. They're doing all kinds of leadership things, and nobody's taking a profit. Everybody who's an investor in Vanguard is an owner of Vanguard. The only owners of Vanguard are the investors in Vanguard. So it's a nice, tight little situation where you eat your own cooking, and you're doing what's really right because it's what's really right for everybody. Hmm, Really interesting. So given how the world has changed over the past few decades— Have you noticed any changes in the culture at Vanguard over that period? Honestly, no. It's astonishing. It's still Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts gathered together every day to do, as they like to say, to do the right thing. And that's the only metric by which they make a judgment. What's the really right thing to do for our investor clients? Because it's their shop and we're here to do the right thing for them. So when we look around at the world of low-cost indexes, they're all pretty much the same. They're cheap. They tend to hold almost identical portfolios. What makes the Vanguard version of this so different? How does Vanguard brand itself in what is essentially a commodity product? It's really fascinating. Essentially a commodity product, if you have a client, they will understand and appreciate They get good service, not fabulous service, but good service at low cost on a very reliable basis. And there's a group of people who are working full time to protect them from anything dumb or getting conned. Not bad. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
So let's talk about the enigma that is Jack Bogle. He spent the first 25 years of his career on the active side of the street. Um, It seems like it's almost a coincidence that Vanguard was even launched. Tell us about that. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways you come at the answer to your question. First, Jack engineered what was supposed to be the great merger made in heaven, combining old-fashioned Wellington with all of the integrity that it might have had in days gone by. Heavy sales load, heavy on sales activities, uh, not so good on investing, combined with a hot ticket group in Boston, and it looked like that would be a winning proposition for everybody. Only problem, culture, personality, way of thinking, way of doing business. Jack always wanted to have complete control of everything. The guys at the Thorndike, Doran, Payton, and Lewis partnership, which is now the core of modern Wellington, believed deeply in a consensus development as friends talking things out, figuring out together what's the best thing to do, take a long-term point of view. Uh, The two cultures did not mix. And Jack insisted on his culture being dominant because that was key to his personality. Mm -hmm. And that made it worse, not better. And then he insisted more on having it his way. And that made it even worse. And so finally they got to the point of saying, you have to go. And essentially they deposed him. They tossed out the king eventually winning a vote at a board level where he was removed from Wellington, the investment firm, but Jack had a clever backdoor (laughs) way around it. He was still a participant and part of the board where there were numerous independent directors and the way the mutual fund industry is set up, the administration of the fund and the management of the investments are two different creatures, so he was able to stay with the admin side. Tell us a little bit about that. You've done such a nice job of summarizing it, there's almost nothing to say <laughs> other than you got it exactly right. Oh, I got a couple of chapters just on that. <laughs> Jack Bogle understood that the directors had certain kinds of power that could not be taken away. And they were, because of the SEC and the whole concept of regulation of mutual fund industry, representatives of the investors in the mutual funds. That was a very strong base. And so legally, the directors were responsible for figuring out what to do about investing, and the directors were responsible for figuring out what to do about sales. That's legally, it's not the way it actually worked. The way it actually worked is the directors did exactly what they were told by the management (laughs) company, because otherwise they wouldn't get the very nice fees that they were getting, and they wouldn't have the privilege of coming to the meetings, and so on and so on. Well, all the directors were buddies of the folks running the investment. Why else would you choose one? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Obedient directors, friends of the firm, all this sort of stuff is really not a nice part of the history. It's very different today. But 25, 30 years ago, it was a different world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jack had worked out that the directors would have responsibility for making the final decision on things that were important enough so that they had some real uh, gravitas and some real strength. And he had a very close relationship with several of the directors. 
And several of the directors had a high regard for Jack as a man of integrity. Mm-hmm. And so they were very strong in support for him. Guys like Chuck Root, for an example. He was the head of TFNC, the actuarial firm, mm-hmm. and a really distinguished talent in the Philadelphia business community. And basically thought that Jack was good guy with strong intentions and maybe too strong a personality sometimes, but a good guy for the long run and was clear going to support him. And Jack had similar relationships with people who would give him support, just enough so that he could get the vote on his side for things that had to do with administration. Interesting phenomenon. One of the guys said he was most focused on getting to be sure that he would get the right support management consultant named Warden who was doing some terrific work for European companies trying to understand American business after the Second World War mm-hmm. and built up a very nice franchise. Uh, he died. And if it hadn't died, the, the, the night before the vote, if it hadn't happened that way, the vote might have gone the other way. So that, that close. Anyway, Jack won by marginal vote the right to be able to do the administration. What a win. You think about Pyrrhic victories. What a win. Let me just be sure I understand this. I'm Jack Bogle. The one thing I don't care about at all, have no interest in whatsoever, is fund administration. That's my sole business. And I'm going to have less than 30 people working with me. And the crowd of funds that I'm managing are basically going downhill because redemptions are larger than new sales. That's not much to start with. But no, not at all. got to understand at the start, there's a magic missing ingredient. Jack's ability to be ferociously angry and beautifully articulate for any case he ever wanted to make was a major competitive factor. And then a couple of things were lucky breaks. Money market funds came out and you could charge 1% on a money market fund, which is a lot to charge for something Mm -hmm. that's as plain vanilla as a money market fund. But a money market fund was sure to be a winner compared to the bank CDs that were limited by regulation to 5% interest. Mm-hmm. And Paul Volcker was driving the interest rates up to 8, 10, 12, even 14% on money market instruments. All you had to do as a money market fund manager is buy the standard stuff, treasury bills, commercial paper, and the like. And you could put together a portfolio that's producing a very high income. And the banks that had all the money were limited to that 5.5%. So the money flowed out of the banks into the mutual funds. And Vanguard made itself obvious choice by having slightly lower fees and then lower fees and then lower fees as their assets built up. So they had low fees for an identical product. And you don't have to be that smart to figure out, hey, wait a minute, these are identical products right. and one is low cost. Why not? Why not? So let's also talk about what was then thought of as a fairly radical concept mutualizing the mutual fund business. Tell us a little bit about that idea where instead of being profit-driven, the profits would eventually flow back to the owners, the investors in the funds, through lower fees. 
Well, you just said it beautifully. <laughs> well, you know, I, I gave, I've been educated with this book, so it's deep in my thought process. Well, you know, once you get two and two is four, it's easy it's, to remember and put to work. But uh, the secret here over and over and over again is ferocious drive to not fail, mm-hmm. which was Jack. Ferocious drive to be recognized as Mr. Wonderful, which was a very important part of Jack Bogle all through his career, but it gets more and more and more important as he got deeper into Vanguard. Those two phenomena show up over and over and over again. So given how successful the mutualization was, why didn't any other asset managers copy the structure? It seems like... Oh, wait, 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 wait. What's the American way? I start a business to make a profit. If I do a good job, people will come to my business. Mm-hmm. I'll get bigger. I'll make more profit. So I do a good job. I'll keep getting more. And it's a positive cycle. Okay. What would attract anybody to get into a business where you do a really good job and you break even? You do a really, really good job for years and you break even. You do a really, really, really good job for year after year after year for all kinds of people and you break even. You mean you never, ever make a profit? That's right. You never, ever make a profit. Well, what's in it for me? And that is a stopper for almost everybody who starts a business. If you can't make a profit, why in the world would you get going? It goes back to Adam Smith and all the way through since then. You do end up achieving a certain size where there are economies of scale and you pay yourself a, a very nice salary. Hey, maybe you don't go public. Maybe you don't sell the firm. Uh, but you sleep at night and you know you're doing the right thing for your clients, there's, there's got to be some appeal for that. Now you're getting to why is the culture at Vanguard so steadily the same and why do people at Vanguard enjoy being where they are? First, they really like doing a good job and doing the right thing in doing a good job. It's amazing. People really do like being in, honest. People really do like delivering good value. People really do like doing a great job for other people as customers. And particularly if you make clear when you join Vanguard, you're never going to get rich. It is not going to happen. So if that's the main item on your agenda, go somewhere else. And there are plenty of places in Wall Street where they'll say, you want to get rich, come here. Hmm. So if you don't want to get rich, but you do want to do something you're proud of every day with a group of people who are just like you, proud of what they're doing, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, pretty soon you start to say, you know, there's something to this. Uh, Maybe being a Jesuit is not all that bad an idea. (laughs) And pretty soon you start finding, hey, hey, wait a minute, this works. Let's talk a little bit about not just Jack Bogle, but the era and the team he assembled that was so crucial to Vanguard's success. Tell us a little bit about how this you know, 1927 Yankees came together? (laughs) Great question. First, Jack was a man with a mission. And if you spent time with him, you could be infected with that sense of mission and purpose. And if that rang the bell for what you wanted to do with your working career, it was almost magic because there wasn't very much competition from other people doing things in the investment world. Secondly, this was a man of tremendous conviction about what was going to be the right thing to do. Sometimes that worked very much the advantage of Vanguard. There were some times when it worked just the other way, and it was a real negative. 
um, but decisive, whichever way was characteristic of Jack. As a personality, he could put on the charm in a way in which almost anybody would melt. And then, of course, there were hard-hitting times when he was absolutely determined that everybody was going to do this or that. And you were already on board, and you sort of say, well, you take the good with the bad. We can work this one out, so on and so on. Really interesting. Tell us a little bit about Jack Brennan, the man who succeeded Bogle as as, uh, the second CEO of Vanguard. He's really quite a fascinating character. Well, he had a terrific impact. And if you look at the impact in terms of assets under management, what Bogle did in his time, Brennan did 10 times as much in his time. 10 times as much. And he did it by putting together a team of other people empowering them to be strong and effective at what they were doing. And it goes back to a couple of different root factors. Boston Irish Catholic training. His dad was told by his guidance counselor in high school, no kid, you're not going to become a mechanic. You're going to go to school because you're too good and too smart to stop your life right at this graduating from high school. You're going to college. And that was a breakthrough. Hmm. And Jack's father became a consequential banker in the Boston area. But he always stayed clear to his basic roots. Jack Brennan grows up as a son of that kind of straightforward guy mm-hmm. and becomes a very, very straightforward guy himself. The second characteristic is he was a very good athlete. And he was very good at lacrosse in particular. And one day, his kids were asking him, well, Dad, were you the highest scorer? And he said, that's not the right question. What do you mean, Dad? They gave him a copy of the Dartmouth Indian, the Mm -hmm. student newspaper. Brennan, 28 assists, eight goals. He said, it's not whether you score, it's whether your team scores. And that's Jack Brennan all the way through. He's all about bringing the team forward. As he said himself, being famous is not on my agenda. Right. And it's very clear. Most people have never heard of Jack Brennan. He's probably the most important person in the development of Vanguard as an organization. That's quite a statement. I, I don't disagree, but I don't think most people are aware how he professionalized Vanguard, how he brought in a huge team of people, but he also found all sorts of both cost savings and growth that as good as Bogle was, it was just outside of his expertise. Yeah. And well, Jack Bogle always said, I'm a small company guy. And Jack Brennan understood to be the really right vanguard in the future, going to have to be a big organization. Second, you're going to have to have a lot of computing power because technology is the secret to keeping costs low, low, mm. low in the long run. Jack Bogle would say over and over again, computers are too damn expensive. And he was right on the day that you buy them. But if you can only think of them as that moment, you're not going to be able to get a payoff. If you think of them as going to own them for five years or 10 years and going to use some tools to bring the cost of the operation down, it's a completely different answer. And so Jack Brennan was absolutely key to the whole idea of using technology, particularly computers, and moving in advancement that direction. Second thing is he's very good at distributing responsibility and hiring in outstanding individuals to do, in a quiet way, the things that needed to get done. So 
shift from one person to a team, and the team has got maybe a dozen key players on it, then you get something that's got tremendous capacity to manage a larger and larger organization, which Vanguard had to become in order to get the economic power that it has today. All right, to keep driving costs lower. So Brennan and Bogle were very close. Eventually, to Brennan's dismay, the relationship fell apart. Tell us a little bit about that episode. Well, easy analogy would be father and son. Mm -hmm. Older guy, younger guy. Mr. Outside, Jack Bogle. Mr. Inside, Jack Brennan. So long as that was the working relationship, things were great. But Jack Bogle always thought of Vanguard as my company. Mm -hmm. And when you have a possessive view like that, you can talk yourself into making serious mistakes. He had agreed with Jim Reby way back when that the longest that anybody ought to work at Vanguard would be maybe to 70. So let's have 70 be our retirement age. They got closer and closer and closer to it. And Jack Bogle said, well, yeah, but it doesn't apply to the chairman. It doesn't apply to me. It can't be the really right thing. And the board of directors said, no, it really is the right thing. Uh, in fact, the company has already gone past your skill set, right. and <clears throat> Jack Brennan has got the skill set, and he's proving it over and over and over again. We want to make that change in a very clear way. I don't want to make that change. And Jack Bogle really, really resisted it. Finally, it turned out he was deeply upset about not having made a fortune the way Ned Johnson had made uh-huh. a fortune at Fidelity. So they gave him a substantial settlement to leave with good behavior, and a great opportunity for him to start Bogle Research, which turned out to be a marvelous success for Jack Bogle and for people who are paying attention in that direction, but take him out of the controls position on Vanguard so it could basically grow in its natural way as a major phenomenon. So let's talk a little bit about John Neff, another name that made a huge difference early on doesn't really get talked about all that much. Tell us what he did and why he was so pivotal to Vanguard's success. People don't talk about John Neff today, but in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, people talked about John Neff because he had the best record of any mutual fund manager in the country. Wow. And you could argue that one of the great managers at Capital Group had an even better record, but Capital broke up the funds into multiple different portfolio managers, so it was not public. But among the public recorded, John Neff had the best performance over the long term. Wow, does that make a difference when you're looking at year after year after year after year, with some exceptions, sometimes for two or three years, but over any long-term investment, had the best record of anybody in the investment business. What about Gus Sauter? He was the first chief investment officer at Vanguard Group, highly regarded. Uh, tell us a little bit about his contributions. A terrific quant with a great deal of modesty and a wonderful ability to think things through. And Gus Sauter was critical to the development of the ETF business and critical to the development of the indexing business and the capacity to manage with the quantitative group, substantial fractions of the actively managed portfolios because he could replicate what an active manager might do. And one of these quiet, soft-spoken, it's not about me, it's about the interesting work that my team is doing, the team builder and terrific technology understander who was able to put things together in a way that was really wonderful. 
You mentioned how important Jack Brennan was. Let's talk a little bit about Bill McNabb. He was running Vanguard right in the heart of the financial crisis. He's the one who basically told all the crew members, hey, nobody's getting fired. Just get on the phone, speak to the clients, and don't worry about your jobs. We're all safe. Tell us a bit about his decision-making and how important he was, not just during the financial crisis, but you know, I think Vanguard was about 800 billion pre-crisis, and now it's 10X, it's 8 trillion. Tell us a little bit about what Bill McNabb brought to the table. Now, secret to Bill McNabb is modesty, competence, and discipline. And if you look at how would you understand that, think of him as he was for many, many years a rower. Mm-hmm. In crew, there are no fabulous individual performers. It's all about how the whole group of eight people row simultaneously to a level of perfection. And if they get it really, really right, perform in a way that you can't match. And that's what Bill McNabb was all about, is disciplined, steady, reliable performance, and aw shucks personality on the outside, but Mr. Trustworthy on the inside, and everybody knew he was the kind of solid citizen that you would like to have your sister marry, or you'd like to have your mother marry, or you'd like to have your daughter marry. I mean, it's just one of those things. He's just a Mr. Good Guy. And while every other firm in the investment business was cutting costs because the market was down and looked like it was going to go down a lot, he said, no, we're not going to cut costs at all. Nobody's losing their job. We're all going to stay here together because the number of customers is not going down. It's right. just that the profitability of the business is going down. And we are not a profit-minded organization. We're a service-minded organization. We're all about the customers because they're our owners. So we're going to stay right steady on through. And that made a terrific impact internally. But, of course, it also meant that they had a wonderfully strong organization coming out of the financial crisis. And that was a big help, too. Yeah, perfectly positioned. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing. 
the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Tell us about Charlie Root. What was his role as an advisor and a board member? He was the head of a major actuarial consulting firm in Philadelphia. Very disciplined thinker and an organizationally minded person. And one of those people that you'd love to have as a director of your corporation. Unfortunately, shortly after some of the most important decisions, he was cleaning out the gutters in his home. Mm-hmm. And the ladder he was sticking, had climbed up to the gutters on, started to slip a little bit to the side. Uh-oh. And I'm afraid that that caused his death. And it was hmm. a real loss to Vanguard and a real loss to the Philadelphia community. There's one person I, I really have to ask about, and that's you. You were a director at Vanguard for over a decade. You were a strategy consultant. Tell us about how you felt your role was and what your contributions were during that, that era. In f- all fairness, I have to feel... Look at I, you, you're blushing. I can't believe this. <laughs> I really enjoyed being a director uh, we didn't get paid very much. Mm-hmm. I have to admit the food that we were served at meals was really pretty crummy. But it was all part of the keep the cost down, keep the cost down attitude. Management was so candid and so open with us as directors. It was a privilege to be working with them. And it didn't hurt that I was sitting side by side with Bert Malkiel, who is right. one of those outstanding people in the investments world. And Bert has just turned 90. Wow. And his great book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, has just come out with a new, very considerably updated version. And to sit with him and to realize on item after item after item, Bert and I agreed, Bert and I agreed, Bert and I agreed. So it was a wonderful, privileged opportunity to be able to be candid, direct, blunt-spoken, and to have a really capable guy sitting right beside you saying, you're, you're on the right track, keep going, keep going. And to have a management team that was so glad to hear what we had to say, even when it made might be really in disagreement with them or might be slightly in disagreement with them, they loved having the candor coming from the outside. Let's talk a little bit about the current state of Vanguard, but I have to preface it with Jack Bogle's CMH, not not EMH, not the uh, not the efficient market hypothesis, but the cost matter hypothesis, which really dates back to his Princeton thesis. It wasn't so much about active versus passive; it was about expensive versus inexpensive. Tell us a little bit about how that impacted the development at Vanguard. <laughs> First, you got to understand that Jack Bogle was a master of the personality franchise development business. Uh, When nobody else gave a damn about becoming clearly identified in a very specific way, Jack cared greatly about that. And it goes back to when, as he likes to tell the story on himself, uh, at least did tell the story on himself, whether he likes it or not, uh, when he was in school. He came in second in his academic performance. And he went around to each one of his teachers 
pleading with them to re-examine and modify his grade so he could come in first. He wanted to be the valedictorian, not the salutatorian. Now, why would he care so much about that? It is not the be-all and end-all of the world. It's because of his personality. Something deep inside him drove him to always enhance things, make things look better, make things look better, make things look better. And so all the way through the story of Vanguard, you'll find Jack Bogle doing things or saying things to make the record look much more positive about what he contributed than the reality. Mm-hmm. And one of the awkwardnesses is the franchise building was done so beautifully, so consistently, so skillfully by a master of that craft that it still, 20 years later, 30 years later, carries on. And most people, if you ask them, when you think of Vanguard, who do you think of? Bing, they've got it. Well, Jack Bogle was terribly important at the starting. Nobody could have started the organization without being Jack Bogle. Partly anger, partly talent, partly skills of various particular characteristics, one of which was building the personal franchise. Nobody could have started Vanguard, but if Jack Bogle had stayed in control, it would never have become the organization it is today. It would be substantially smaller. It would be deeply outclassed by people who'd use automation to make their offering a better and more effective proposition. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't see the Vanguard that's been developed since then. So, So let's talk a little bit about that Vanguard. Uh, very huge in ETFs, big overseas investing, uh, lots of other things that Vanguard and Bogle didn't see eye to eye about. Uh, how often did the company disagree with its founder? Interesting question, and I'm not sure I could do it in terms of numerical quantitative. Mm-hmm. But if you look back, the concepts that Jack Bogle really believed in, mm-hmm. uh, Computers, he thought, were terribly expensive. That would have been a stopper today. Really? Just, sure. You couldn't do it. Right. Uh, he really believed in his making the decisions. It's too complicated a business. There are too many things going on. There are too many different responsibilities for one person to do all of the decision making. If you look at Vanguard today, you're looking at a substantial organization that's going through a substantial transformation towards becoming more of an effective organization at serving clients' interests and and doing a better and better job for the people who are already the investor owners of Vanguard. So they are not making a major commitment internationally. They're not spending a lot of money to build a future business in other countries. Uh, They're looking for places where the resistance by the banking establishment or the financial establishment in those different countries is more open to non-local competition. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to find, very hard to find. They've made some changes that were keeping up with the times. They've got a substantial institutional business. Mm -hmm. If you're in the investment business as an institution, you really want to know something about private equity. If Vanguard doesn't have private equity, that's going to take them out of the running. So they've developed a really interesting joint venture where they're able to get access to a very competent 
private equity investment organization at a very controlled cost, they're not aiming to be in the very best, but second quartile of performance on a reliable basis with broadly diversified capability, okay, that'll work very nicely. They're doing the same sort of a change in going towards more and more advice. And anybody who's been in the investment management business, as you have been, looking back on things, you can tell almost everybody would be well advised to have been more a long-term investor, Mm -hmm. make fewer choices and decisions, figure out what's really right for you. And at the same time, you'd recognize that every individual is unique. Nobody is exactly the same. Now, if you look at personality, for example, your eyeglasses, I wear eyeglasses, your shoe size, my shoe size, your shirt size, collar size, sleeve length, pretty soon you realize Barry's clothes are different from mine because Barry's different from me, and he ought to wear the clothes that are right for him, and I ought to wear the clothes that are more right for him. I might get advice from my wife or some on what to wear, but... We're actually dressed shockingly similarly with our collared shirts and a blue sweater up on <laughs> right. top. But, but but isn't doesn't that kind of raise the point of well everybody's different, but everybody needs to save for retirement to pay for their kids' college to leave something to the next generation. It shouldn't vary radically. The broad strokes should all be fairly similar, shouldn't they? In terms of the macro proposition, you're exactly right. But everybody is different from everybody else in age, income, wealth, attitude towards life, how many years you want to keep working, mm-hmm. uh, things like risk tolerance. Sure. Everybody differs. So it turns out that almost everybody is specifically, individually, themselves different from somebody else, specifically, individually, themselves. And as a result, advice to individuals is increasingly, obviously, a useful part of the total investment proposition. And Vanguard is moving in that direction and capable, probably, of more power in that direction than anybody would ever understate or estimate. I read a crazy statistic somewhere. I don't recall if it was in the book or elsewhere. In the state of Pennsylvania, the certified financial planners, something like 96% of them in the state work for Vanguard. That, that's just a crazy number as they've pushed into uh, the advisory business and hiring all of these CFPs. They've made a major commitment to serving the investor with what they really need. And most people really ought to have a good investment plan, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Most people ought to have a clear definition of their long-term purpose as investors, other than, I, I want to do better than the market, or I want to do at least as well as the market, or I want to do well, or something vague and general like that. Very hard to get people to be very specific about what do they really, really want to do and why. And if you've got a good advisor, you can do a lot to improve on your results by figuring out together what makes sense to you that's available in the marketplace and making the right decisions of what's available and realistic as opposed to dreams that may or may not come true. So so let's talk about two areas that are a little controversial. One is the thought that as indexing became more and more appealing and, and attracted more and more assets, Jack Bogle was a little concerned about 
uh, an oligopoly about potential antitrust issues. <laughs> At what size is passive or indexing uh, too large? I think it's a wonderful question, but if you don't mind, I'm going to say it's the wrong question. Okay. The right question is, when will active investors say to themselves, the professionals, the people who are making their living as active investors, mm-hmm. say to themselves, I think I'm going to get a different career. I think <laughs> I'm going to leave this business and go in a different direction. At what age will they say to their children, look, it was okay for me in my time, but it's not a good place for you. Don't do it. Don't do it. At what point are we going to see fewer people taking courses on investment management at business schools? We're nowhere near that. Right. We're putting more people through the learning process of how to be pretty damn good as an analyst through business school courses and then out into the industry than are coming out of the industry through retirement. And that's where the market is really controlled for market efficiency or correct pricing. There's really smart people. If you go back 50 years ago, there were a small number of people who made their living as analysts and a small number of people made their living as portfolio managers. Maybe as many as 500 people in the world. Mm -hmm. And today, it's somewhere between one and a half and two million people. Wow. That's a big change. And there have been lots of other changes. The one that I think is the most powerful, and here we are at Bloomberg Radio. Think about how many people own a terminal a Bloomberg terminal that will give you any answer to any question you ever want to ask for the rest of your life within seconds. It's, yeah. all, it's all data and technology. It's all over the place. Everybody has computing power in their pocket. Mm-hmm. That's as much as a 360, which was IBM's magical power force 50 years ago. And everybody has access to the internet and it's instantaneous communication worldwide. And thank goodness we speak the English language because that's the language of investing worldwide. But it means that there's this huge transformation that's taken place and it has made the markets more and more skillful at finding the right price, Hmm. but made it harder for active managers. And as you and I've talked about before, Active managers underperformed the chosen segment of the market they went after. And now we're somewhere between 85 and 90% of active managers fall short of their intention. And when they fall short, they often get desperate and fall very short by Hail Mary passes and other kinds of dramatic efforts. The, The paradox of skill is the better the professionals get, it becomes increasingly harder to even beat the market. So that, yep. that's quite fascinating. One other um, question that's a little controversial. Uh, we've seen some pushback to ESG, environmental social governance investing, and the voting of proxies. How does an entity like Vanguard uh, manage these issues on behalf of their huge uh, 30 million clients and their $8 trillion in assets? And very simple. They do what you would like to, if you were a corporate executive, what would you like to have your shareholders do? Pay attention to the votes, be quite consistent about always voting. And as you know, most people don't vote at all. Mm-hmm. And then many institutional investors say, it's not our decision to make because we're on behalf of others. So your very best client, if you're a corporate executive, 
best shareholder is to be somebody who is in it for the long run. And if you're Vanguard and indexing, you're in it permanently for the long, long, long run. Cares about certain basic principles, and they do. And they advertise what those principles are. For example, they believe that a board of directors should have uh, an incentive in the company stock. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very strong to have diversification of personality and background. Um, okay, fine. Those are pretty much straightforward things. Nobody would have any trouble with that. Yeah. And they're very much in favor of certain kinds of incentives, but not others. And most people look at it and say, yeah, those are the right things to be in favor of. So it's one after another after another items where Vanguard and State Street and BlackRock are all three in agreement, basically, that good governance is an important characteristic mm-hmm. of a board of directors, and they really want to see that going. What is it that you wouldn't like about the way in which the voting is done? It's a terrifically powerful answer. What wouldn't you like? And there is nothing that you wouldn't like. Now, is it possible that a group could quietly, somehow, skillfully get together and agree, let's do something that's really not going to be right for our investors? Yeah, you could say mechanically it's possible, but there's Canada, for an example, as a country, right next to one of the most powerful military organization nations in the world. Are the Canadians afraid the Americans are going to attack again? Of course not. In fact, we cooperate in our activities. Yeah, okay. What would happen if somebody at any one of the indexing leaders were to do something that was not quite Boy Scout, Girl Scout, right Mm -hmm. down the line? They'd get called out. Mm -hmm. If they got called out, would it be in the newspapers? Yes. Would it be on Bloomberg Radio? Yes. Would you have an interview with somebody who had called them out? Yes. One of those perfectly marvelous situations where you're forced to do what you damn well want to do. They they all have State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock. They all have pretty good businesses. Why would you want to mess with that? (laughs) Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. 
And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Really, really fascinating stuff, Charlie. Let's jump to some of our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. And I want to start with the last time I saw you was before the pandemic. What have you been doing during the pandemic? And and tell us what's been keeping you entertained. Well, part of the entertainment value is that our our children, or daughter and her husband and their two kids under five, have moved into our house. Uh-huh. So we've had the privilege of watching little kids again. And I have to tell you, that is a dream come true. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the second thing is we have an agreement in our family that we're worried about the children and COVID. Uh, so we don't do very much at all in mm-hmm. the way of travel. And I used to be five days a week, get on the train into Manhattan right. as a way of doing business. I haven't been in New York City three times in three years. Wow. It's really something else. And uh, so I'm delighted to be here today. But in our family, I have to drive in and then turn around and drive back. And as you know, the traffic is not all that convenient and so on and so on. But things like that have been distractions. Uh, I've enjoyed the privilege. Zoom has made a wonderful difference to my life and Mm -hmm. I'm sure to most other people. The freedom to be able to do repeat messages and communication in a serious way uh, through Zoom has really been terrific. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third thing is I've got a real bee in my bonnet that I want to be able to try to be helpful to people. And so doing investment advice is just as easy for me located where I am, once you make the communication contact, works out fine. And I've really enjoyed being able to provide some useful investment advice uh, to individuals as we're going along. And then the the third thing is uh, I've been quite active in writing. I've written for the Financial Times several different pieces, and I've uh, written a couple of different books. I've got three books in the process of coming out. Uh, some have I been busy? Yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> so, so one of the things I always like to ask people is about their mentors. Who helped shape your career? Well, the most important person probably is Nellie Walsh, my sixth grade school teacher, mm-hmm. uh, who called me on the carpet one day, and I was terribly surprised because I thought I was doing just the right thing, and. She said, you were wrestling with Peter Neely, weren't you? Well, I was, but that's because of I couldn't get him to stop throwing the snowballs with cinders in them at the little kids. And he was picking on the little kids, and I didn't think that was fair. And she said, Charles, you don't, never call me Charlie, always, Charles, I think more of you, I expect more of you than you would lower yourself to the likes of Peter Neely. You may go. <laughs> And ever since then, I've been held to a higher account, higher standard, higher expectation in every way to be responsive to Nellie Walsh. But And more serious people in the investment world, uh, Joe Lasser, who was the director of research at Wertheim, a traditional Wall Street firm, he believed deeply in security analysis and was a very strong advocate of the CFA program. And so he got me and a group of us in our training group to take the CFA exam as soon as we could. Uh, that was an important break, breakaway time. Uh, 
Another would be Collier Cromer was a terrific professor of investment management at Harvard Business School, and I enjoyed very much working with him. Uh, you could argue also um, Ben Graham and David Dodd because of their wonderful book, Security Analysis, which was the first affirmation of professionalism in the financial analysis and securities pricing industry, uh, and it really made a big difference to me. One of the great privileges of my life was to work when I was in, working in Wall Street and then working for Greenwich Associates for 30 years. Working all day, every day, with some of the smartest, most capable people in the world. And they were all involved in investment management. And if any one of them competed, all of the others competed. And they all wanted to try to find ways to be better. And they were all willing to tell you any insights that they had. And they were all willing to provide a chorus of teachers and guidance in terms of what's going on in investment management. And for me, that's really the most important single place for learning that I had. And what a privilege all day, every day, this, to be with the smartest people in the room who are trying to figure out investment management. And mm -hmm. when you add it all together, you realize they're competing with themselves and they're not going to be able to beat each other on a systematic and regular basis. And boy, does that make a big difference to your way of thinking. So you mentioned Graham and Dodd and, and their uh, books on, on security analysis. Tell us some of your over other favorites and what else you've been reading more recently. Well, more recently, I have to tell you, I haven't found a book on investment management that I thought was really compelling. Could argue, no, come on, there is a very recent book. That's the new edition of an established book. Bert Malkiel's Random Walk Down Wall uh -huh. Street has got to be one of the best books that's ever been written about investment management and about the markets and how to think about them. Uh, wonderful guy and a wonderful book. And has done so much for so many people. Then if you look at other books that I would like to read, then they tend towards history, biography, and I'm always looking for suggestions of more books to read in that general field because I think you learn so much about the way human beings do things if you mm -hmm. study about them, study about them, and study about them. And so I'm a, I'm a nut for trying to learn from others. I, I like the suggestions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is thinking about a career in investment management? Here I have a very strong opinion that you should think very candidly about why you're interested. We all know, for an example, that it's a very well-paid line of work. Most people don't really appreciate how well-paid it is, but it is wonderfully well-paid. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you don't have to retire at 65. In fact, many people work into their 70s. Many people even work into their 80s. At 85, I'm still working in the business. I just very wonderful privilege of not having to stop work at some arbitrary date like 65 or 60. Now, that's a characteristic. When you look at the lifetime compensation of being in the markets all the time and free to pick any time you want to, to pick a stock individually, that can be, for some people, a very attractive characteristic. So if you'd like to make some substantial financial success, that's one reason. If that's your motivation, I think you're in trouble. Hmm. Because, yes, of course, you will make a substantial amount of income. But it's not the most important part of your life. 
when you get to the end of life and you're off standing in front of St. Peter at the pearly gates and he said, well, you had your life. You were very lucky to be born at all, but there you were and you chose the investment management world. What did you really do during that that you're proud of? I made a lot of money. That's not a good answer (laughs) to a really great question. So be sure that if you're going into the investment management field that you know, is it because you want to make a lot of money or is it because you like the idea of competing all the time with some of the smartest, most hardworking people in the world, which could be a terrific motivator and you could understand, or is it because you want to serve people and help them with what they're trying to figure out about what they want to accomplish? If you're the latter group, then you're going to be in a profession. Mm-hmm. And you will also get paid well, but your compensation will come primarily from being good at the profession. That lasts a lifetime. But you have to be clear about what is your motivation. Really, really very interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of finance and investing in Wall Street today that you wish you knew 50 or so years ago? Well, <laughs> you know, it's pretty obvious in a way. I wish I'd understood how much change was going to take place in the investment management activity and field. Computers, for example, when I first got started, there were no computers being used or maybe in the back office, but they were clunky kinds of operations. And the idea that there would be the transformation of information that worldwide is available to you instantaneously through Mike Bloomberg's wonderful invention, the terminal, that the Bloomberg Terminal has transformed the world of information gathering. The internet has transformed the world of information gathering. And as a consequence, the world of investing is now worldwide. And everybody in the world is competing with everybody else in the world in the investment management field. So uh, I wish I'd understood how dramatic a change there would be. Because it would make a big difference. To, if you had understood that, you'd have the forces of change working for you, and you could have made a completely different transformation of life. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Charlie, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Charlie Ellis, uh, author of the new book, Inside Vanguard, Leadership Secrets from the Company That Continues to Rewrite the Rules of Investing Business. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out any of the previous 475 podcasts we've done over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Uh, Be sure and sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can follow all of the Bloomberg podcasts at Podcasts on Twitter. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Justin Milner is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. 
At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.